Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Thank you, Andy. So, I know you just prayed, but I'd, I'd like if you would just pray again briefly with me. God, I pray that we would be people who, as we interact with your word, that we would be able to be confident that we're hearing truth. And Father, I pray that when it comes to living out the truth that we hear, I pray, God, that we would be people who love in doing truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, There's a guy who, uh, way back in, I think it was way back in 1992, um, a a guy named uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. Uh, Now, Chapman, Gary Chapman is a very interesting guy. I did not know all this, but Gary Chapman, how many of you have ever read the book or know the book, The Five Love Languages? Yeah. So this guy, Gary Chapman, interesting guy, he has a He has a master's degree in anthropology. He has a doctorate in philosophy, a master's degree in adult education, and a master's degree in religious education. And he is currently a pastor in North Carolina. So he is a pretty smart cookie, I would say. Anyway, the book he wrote back in 1992, The Five Love Languages, is a book that sold, uh, according to Amazon, it has sold something like 12 million copies and has been on the bestseller list for the last 10 years straight. Now, that book, uh, that book, if you know, the book Five Love Languages is a book that was primarily aimed at married couples. And the idea of the book, if you're, familiar, if you're not familiar with the idea of the book, is uh, that all of us, every single one of us, we give and we receive love differently. And in any kind of a relationship, that can cause uh, issues. It can cause problems if you're not paying attention to how you give and receive love. Uh, if you're not paying attention, you have two different people, you know, and this, since it was aimed at married couples, two different people who are trying to express love to each other, but they're frustrated because they're missing each other. One's on Twitter and one's on Gab, and they're just kind of missing each other. They do not recognize the effort that each is making um, to, to love each other, and it's frustrating. Now, this This book and this idea that we give and receive love differently in the church because of Gary Chapman, this has become so well-known that there are some of you who who know what your love language is, right? Um, Is there anybody that knows your love language? All of them? Okay. Uh, A needy woman, Rick, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, anybody know their love language? Sarcasm. We're not getting anywhere with this real quickly, are we? Uh, but does anybody really know their love language? Words of affirmation. Anybody else that raise hand? Okay, well, I know, um, I know mine. Uh, uh, mine is Oreos. Um, and actually, by the way, having said that, Donna has warned me. When I say things like that, I end up with Oreos, all right? And here's the deal. Some of you, whether you know it or not, you have the love language of giving and receiving gifts. And so right now you're thinking, oh, I need to give him Oreos. I do not need any more Oreos, all right? I need no more Oreos. Because at some point, very soon, these pants are going to go, all right? 
And when they go, I'm afraid the buckle's going to kill somebody. So please, no more Oreos. But at any rate, Gary Chapman has built an industry on this concept of love languages. And he recognized after the success of the book that this is true not just for married couples, but it's true for everybody. That all of us, in a marriage or not, we give and we receive love differently. So he has written a whole host of other books to talk to all kinds of different people to say that you have to begin to know and understand how you give and receive love. Because the bottom line is we are different as human beings. We are unique, which means if we are going to work on being friends, whether in church or outside of the church, if we're going to work on being friends, we have to learn how to overcome these hurdles that we have because we're different. Now, this is actually our January theme at Horizon Church. This is the month when every year we invite everybody to become partners in Horizon Church. We want to become partners with you. This is how we do membership at Horizon. Every year we start all over again, and every year we invite everybody to decide whether or not you want to partner with us for one more year. And this January, this is our theme with you. We want you to know here or on YouTube, we want you to know that we are with you. We want to do life with you. We want to build a friendship with you. But the thing is, if what Gary Chapman wrote is true, then this is not going to be very easily done. We will have to learn to pay attention to our differences and work on overcoming them. And this is not a new idea. 1992 is not the first time that we talked, that human beings talked about how difficult it is to be friends with each other. This is an old idea. So I want to read to you uh, what a man named Paul wrote about this exact same issue, the fact that we have differences and we have to work to overcome them. He wrote this to some of his friends who were in the church at Corinth. Um, so this is the letter to the Corinthian Christians, some of Paul's friends in the city of Corinth. I'm reading from chapter 9, verses 19 to 23 in, uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians obviously picking up kind of right in the middle of a, a much longer discussion. This is what Paul said. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too lived apart from the law so that I could bring them to Christ. Now, I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. Now, there's more, but, but for the sake of our discussion, we'll stop there. Now, it's very obvious um, that to be clear, to be 100% clear and, and truthful with what Paul was writing about, Paul is talking about a very passionate desire that he has to share the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus who changed his life radically, 
He's passionate about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with all of his friends. And we will talk about that particular passion to share Jesus in a couple minutes. But what Paul recognized was that there are obstacles to talking about Jesus. And those obstacles are the differences that we have as human beings. The obstacles are the differences that we have in correctly hearing what somebody else is saying. And he knew, Paul was smart enough to know, that the differences we have can prevent somebody from actually being in a relationship and being in a friendship, and they can prevent somebody from hearing what we have to say. If, for example, Paul was talking to a Jewish person, and if he went about it the wrong way, that Jewish person would not hear and totally disregard what Paul has to say. So Paul knows that if he's going to communicate with people, if he's going to be in a relationship with people, Paul knew, I'm going to have to overcome these obstacles. So Paul had a strategy, and this is so important. You can't miss this. Paul's strategy was not just about his words. Paul was not saying, look, I am going to have to package what I say in different ways for different people. I'm going to have to take the gospel and put it in a different package in different words. That is not what Paul is saying, and this is so important. We miss this. There's a key word in verse 19, the first sentence that I read for you in verse 19. It's the word, you see it for the first time in this sentence. It's the word become when Paul said, I have become a slave. Now that word you are going to see several times in the sentences that follow. You'll see it, for example, in the very next sentence. In my Bible, verse 20, the next sentence is translated this way. My Bible says this, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew. But what you need to understand is that that phrase, live like, is the word become. Paul said, when I'm with the Jews, I become a Jew. And that will be repeated. That same word is going to be repeated with every group of people he talks about. Now, here's the thing. If you would Google that Greek word become, you would find that it means to be created in a particular state, to be converted to, to be brought into existence. So do you understand that Paul is not saying, I will repackage my words? What Paul is saying, I will repackage me. I will repackage me. So Paul knows that our differences are so basic that we cannot get around them with just a superficial change in how we talk. Paul isn't talking about superficial changes. It's not like, oh yeah, I forgot, you don't like to get up early, so let's move breakfast to 9 o'clock. Or he's not saying, yeah, I forgot, you don't eat meat, so I'll offer a different menu. Or he's not saying, yeah, you know, I know you don't do technology very well, so I'll call you instead of texting you. It's not superficial changes. Paul's talking about differences that are so basic that we're actually going to have to become different and pay attention to those differences. And I think this is one of the reasons why most of us do not have friends who are very different from us. It's not that we don't want friendships with people who are different. It's that we don't understand how radically different human beings can be. 
Now, here's the thing. Anytime I talk about this, anytime I read that scripture passage and talk about it, it always makes some people uncomfortable. I've talked about it before, and the common response is people will say, well, what you're talking about is situational ethics. And we're not talking about truth anymore. We're talking about relativism, relativism in which anything goes, and relativism isn't biblical. This is not situational ethics. You will not find Paul saying, when I'm with thieves, I grab my ski mask and dark clothing. Or when I'm with embezzlers, I open a Swiss bank account. This is not situational ethics. What this is, is situational love. It's situational love. Paul actually says, look, I do not ignore the law of God, but I do obey the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ? A new command I'm giving you. Jesus said, love each other. Just like I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is situational love. To be friends, especially when it comes to being friends with people who are different, will require of us situational love. So let's talk about this. How do we do it? Lesson number one, at least for me, seek to understand. Situational love requires us that the very first thing we do is seek to understand. And when we don't, here's what happens. When we don't, our default, our normal method of operating is to just assume that the other person is always going to bend in my direction. When situational love means I am going to bend in his or her direction. Let me give you some real-life examples of how we do this. Example number one, gender differences. Do you know there have been all kinds of studies that reveal that men and women use words differently? And this can really mess us up. Now, obviously, in light of what I'm about to say, All of you know that what I'm about to say is about stereotypes, okay? What I'm about to say is not true of every man and every woman, but it is true enough. Some of you are getting a little bit nervous about this, right? (laughs) This is true enough. This is true enough. It's been proven. It's true enough that there are differences. And when we don't know these differences, it gets us in trouble. For example... Do you know why more men do not do Zumba or yoga? When it's over, when a Zumba session is over, how do you know who won? (laughs) That's actually serious. Men simply tend to be more competitive. Now, that's a stereotype. I know plenty of competitive women. I'm married to one. But with our words, with our words, men are more competitive. We use our words. 
in a default way, more competitively, whereas a woman will use her words in a bonding way. Do you see how different that is? One's competitive and one's bonding. So, for example, at the end of the day, if you are having the same conversation with a man and a woman and you ask each, what did you do today? He will tell you what he did today. But in his conversation, he is telling you what he accomplished. And that is his goal, to communicate to you what he accomplished. Look what I did. Look at the difficulties I overcame. Look at how I managed to get things done, even though I faced resistance. That's what he's saying. I managed to win. At the end of the day, in answer to the same question, a woman will tell you what she did as well. But for her, this is entirely an experience of bonding. It's connecting. It's we're talking. We're bonding. So in that same conversation, when it's done, what is a man hoping for? A well done. And when he doesn't get it, especially from a woman who is most important to him, when he doesn't get it, or when he gets belittled, or when his accomplishments don't seem to matter, he feels smaller and ashamed and defeated and discouraged, and he begins to lose confidence in himself. At the end of that conversation, what is it that a woman is hoping for? I have no idea. <laughs> now, actually, according to, to women I trust, they are expecting that at the end of that conversation, we've connected. We've bonded. They are expecting that that sharing is not just a list of things she did, but that sharing is helping our relationship simply because you are willing to stand here in the kitchen and listen to me. You are showing me you care just because you stand here and talk. And if at the end of that conversation, the man misses all that and will say to her something like, so you spent the whole day in here cleaning? Well, do you need some help? Because I can see there's still a couple cobwebs up there in the corner. To you, it's an offer to help. To her, it's a failed connection. Two very different things. Now, it is not always this way. Honestly, those are stereotypes. It isn't always this way. A year or so ago, Don and I, on purpose, were having a sit-down breakfast together on a Monday morning, hoping to reconnect after a whole lot of busyness. It was, I thought, a bonding moment. So as we sat down over blueberry pancakes, I started to reminisce and remind her about the good old days pre-kids when we would wake up on Monday morning and we would walk down to the pancake house in Ephrata and we would see our favorite waitress who always waited on us and we would say good morning and we, would, we watched her go through a pregnancy. And then we would walk home and we would have the day together pre-kids and as I am reminiscing about all this, Donna stopped eating and is looking at me intently and I'm thinking, 
This, this bonding stuff is awfully powerful. It might lead us somewhere. And finally, Donna, who was looking at me intently, said, you really need to trim some of your nose hair. <laughs> Sometimes a talk is just a talk, okay? But you need to remember and you need to pay attention to the differences in gender. We use words differently. All you have to do, all you have to do is pay attention do a study sometime in the conversations that Jesus had with men and with women. To an unnamed woman at a well, Jesus had a conversation, the longest Jesus conversation recorded in Scripture, and he said to her, can I have a drink? And it started a conversation, and listen to this, it ended with an overjoyed woman running back to her village, and what did she say? Come meet this man. Listen to this. He knows all about me. Do you think that's significant? He knows all about me. Could he be the Messiah? To a man, Jesus might say, so what do you want? What is it you want? Or to a group of men, he might say, tell me, who of you knows which is the greatest commandment? Or to a man, he might say, you know, you are going to have to give up everything you've earned. All that you will have acquired, you will have to give it up and give it to the poor and then come follow me. There are differences in conversation because Jesus seemed to know that our words matter in different ways to men and to women. Then there are cultural differences. There's a pastor I know, a guy named Mike Woodruff, who was entertaining a pastor from Brazil. He was here, the pastor from Brazil was here to, to teach at a weekend conference in his church and on his way to the session from Mike's home to the church, Mike happened to say, hey, do you want a cup of coffee? And the Brazilian pastor sitting in a passenger seat said, wow, we have time for that? I would be honored. That would be great. Now, Mike was thinking, well, I don't know why it's such a big deal, as he pulled into the Starbucks drive through and all of a sudden, the Brazilian started laughing and said, <laughs> you Americans... I feel so sorry for you. I thought you were asking me to be your friend. I thought we were going to sit down over coffee and share our lives. I've had those kind of cultural disconnects moments, moments when I have learned that my default, default is to expect them to bend to me. Just after my high school year, uh, at, in high school, I got to go on a mission trip down to the border of Texas and Mexico and take one or two deep excursions into Mexico. And after that, because we learned to love some of those people, Don and I returned in our first year of marriage as newlyweds. We were sitting with a family, a, a Mexican family in McAllen, Texas, sitting in a tiny cramped kitchen with the Mexican pastor and his wife and I think five of his daughters. They were absolutely wonderful, they were joyful, and we came to love them, and I miss them. I don't remember what we were talking about, but all I know is that as I talked to them, whatever the subject was, I called us, meaning Donna and I, the white people from the north, I called us American. 
I don't remember what word I used to talk about them, but it was something else. Finally, a daughter younger than me by several years looked at me somewhat and somewhat forcefully said, you know, we are Americans too. I cannot imagine Jesus making that mistake. And I have to learn. I have to quit the default in which I expect people to bend to me. And I have to seek to understand. Now, how do we do this? Well, this leads to lesson number two. Use your freedom to put others first. This is exactly what Paul said when he said, although I am free, I have decided to become a slave. Use your freedom to put others first. You know, there's a young boy at Horizon Church who is remarkably free from some of the things that cripple our relationships. And he's free in part because of how his mind works. And in free, he is free in part because he's still so young. If he was here, most of you would know him. When we do a kid's sermon, he'd sit up right here on the end. And when you were talking to him, he is just a bundle of energy all the time. Last Sunday, when those kids were right up here, I talked to those kids about friendship. And I talked to them about how if you want to make a friend, maybe the first thing you can do is ask a person their name. And when I talked to that little boy's mom after church, she said, oh, my goodness, Aiden is never afraid to meet a friend and ask a name. So yesterday afternoon on the church Facebook page, Sarah posted this about her son Aiden. Aiden and I were at the Lehigh Valley Mall today, and he struck up a conversation with a middle-aged man. Surprisingly, the only stranger conversation we had that day. Aiden asked his name, James and asked where his house was. And James said, I don't really have a house, but I'm working on it. He said he just lives in Allentown. Aiden said, my church is in Allentown. And James asked if Aiden's church would pray for him. So please do. I don't have many moments like that. Aiden does. And it makes me wonder what Aiden has that I do not. And I think it's a healthy dose of freedom. One time, Jesus took a little child and put that child in front of the crowd and said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking only about fearlessness and freedom in conversation, but I do think that's part of the package. And I wish I had Aiden's freedom. I think Jesus wishes I had Aiden's freedom. Use your freedom to put others first. Now, the freedom that Paul was talking about was our freedom as saved, redeemed, forgiven, grace-driven, spirit-empowered followers of Jesus Christ. And this freedom means that I am free from the fear of failing. Is there anybody here who has never failed? 
We all do, and we are still here, very much alive. Evidently, failing is not that big of a deal. And even if I do, I am loved immeasurably. I'm free from the fear of shame. I am free from personal ambition. I am free from greed. I am free from the fear of intimidation. I am free from what someone else might think. I am free from having to be right. I am free to put other human beings first because I no longer have to be. Use your freedom to put other people first. And finally, remember that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then every single relationship, every single encounter you will ever have, every friendship is God-centered. Now, this does not mean that God is spoken about in every conversation, hardly. This does not mean that our friends, for, our friends are targets for a conversation about heaven or an invitation to church. No one wants to be a target. This does not mean that you and I are the moral police needing to correct their friends and get them in line. What it means is that we bring to every relationship, we bring to every relationship what Jesus has given to us. Every relationship we have and how they function is a result of God's design. For example, God arranged every relationship so that it must be trust-based, faith-based. There are no relationships anywhere that are based on certainty. It is always about trust. Will you show up? Will you keep your word? Will you return the hedge trimmer you borrowed? Can I trust you? We are people who should excel at faith. What we bring to every friendship is what must be there for it to work. Secondly, what we have experienced and received from Jesus are exactly the ingredients that make any relationship work. Love, forgiveness, hope, grace, acceptance, persistence, truthfulness, patience, kindness, humbleness. This is what we bring to every relationship. And these are gifts that do not require us to be in relationships only with people who share our faith, 
we bring these gifts to every relationship, even those who are people of other faiths or no faiths. It's still the gifts we bring. And thirdly, we should want the very best for our friends, right? You know, I actually saw that this past week, believe it or not, as a definition of friendship. Friendships were defined as a relationship in which you want the best for the other person. And it turns out it's an interesting thing because where I saw that was in an article about a courtroom in which a judge and lawyers were having a hard time defining friendships. It's a very interesting case. It's making its way through the court system right now. And the question is, are Facebook friends really our friends? And the reason it's a legal question is that there is a judge in Florida who had to ask, do I need to recuse myself because one of the attorneys is someone who is a Facebook friend? And the court said, nope, you do not need to, because Facebook friends are not necessarily friends. Facebook, this is quoting, Facebook data mining and algorithms lead to people accepting friend requests from people they hardly know or have never met. So one person in this whole complex issue said something like this. This is wonderful. To be a friend means to want the very best for the person. And that would hardly define the commentary among Facebook friends. Which is sad, isn't it? But true. But it should be true of us. It should be true of us. That we want the very best for our friends. Do you know the name? Do you know the uh, Pendulette? If you don't, Pendulette, or if you, the name, Pendulette is the tall guy. Uh, he is one half of the well-known magician duo, Penn and Teller. I like this guy a whole lot. I like Pendulette. He's one of these guys, when you listen to him talk on blogs or whatever, he's a guy who seems to be genuinely interested in the truth and figuring it out. He is not afraid to talk to people kindly with whom he intensely disagrees. He happens to be a proud atheist. But a couple years ago, one of his fans gave him a Bible. Penn wrote about that in his blog. And of course, some of his atheist friends just got all snippy and snarky and snide and sarcastic. Penn, on the other hand, was very grateful. In fact, he said, um, even though I'm not particularly interested in the gift, I'm actually quite moved that someone cared enough about me to give me a Bible. And then he wrote this. How much would you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? 
That is a sobering question. And it may be that a man who doesn't believe has something to teach someone who does. Which makes me ask, do my friends know me as someone who wants the best for them? Do yours. Jesus, I am quite sure, wants the best for my friends. And I thank God that he does. So let me pray. God, thank you for our friendships. God, I pray that you'd be at work. God, we, it's hard for us to be able to look at people who are different from us. And although we may want to be friends, God, it's a tough thing. And yet the Bible, Jesus and Paul, challenge us consistently to do this. So I pray, God, that you'd be at work in our lives helping us to do this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.